0: This is Floss Weekly. I'm Doc Searles. This week, Sean Powers and I talk with Jonathan Corbett of LWN, that's Linux Weekly News. He's been doing this since the 90s. It is a brilliant publication. He is deeply involved in everything having to do with Linux and the kernel especially and what is going on with C versus Rust and conservatism in the system and how the whole Linux kernel community works. It's deep stuff. It could not be more important. And that is coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This
1: This is Twit. Twit.
0: This is Floss Weekly, episode 700, recorded Wednesday, September 28th, 2022. The Linux kernel gets rusty This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Collide. That's Collide with a K. Collide is an endpoint security solution built around honest security. You can meet your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash floss to learn more and activate a free 14-day trial today. No credit card required. And by IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla. Mozilla. IRL is a show for people who build AI and people who develop tech policies. Hosted by Bridget Todd, this season of IRL looks at AI in real life. Search for IRL in your podcast player. Hello again, everybody, everywhere in the world. I am Doc Searles, and this is Floss Weekly. And I'm joined this week with a very verdant looking and perhaps not sounding Sean Powers. There he is. Do do I sound green?
1: Uh, yeah, well yes die, so
0: he's he's making trouble lately by dyeing his hair green and wearing his green shirt, which I noted earlier to people <laughs> eavesdropping on our back channel, uh it makes him look like a Celtics fan. Which I am, uh, but he's probably not. I don't think he gives a damn, really, do you? I have a cat named Larry Bird. Oh really? Wow. I, I do. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. See? I you didn't he, expect that. Has he or she has he or she eaten birds? I used to have no, wild cats no. that would bring them home to me. You know, you know, they bring back a pre-masticated robin or something and lay it at my feet and look up and go round because like, I'm the alpha cat, and you know, would appreciate and that. Why don't you eat <laughs> this? I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> I'll take it. So, and it's interesting because I'm wearing a purple shirt and you're wearing a green one. There's just something to that, maybe to as a non-theme. Put us together, that, and
1: and we are the Joker. Yeah, and it right? almost I mean, looks like team.
0: Um, yeah, maybe like team colors. So our our guest today is uh, is Jonathan Corbett, who who's who I've not known personally very well, but but have known his work for a very long time. And with LWN, Linux Weekly News, which is persistent and authoritative and complete, as complete as can be. So have you have you kept up with that? I
1: mean, we were both with Linux Journal.
0: And yeah, and, and that's actually funny. up until. Go ahead.
1: So sorry, no, no, I mean, and i'll I'll talk more when he's here too, but it's funny my my relationship with l w n is uh i I'll, I'll wait until he until he's on with this, but um, I purposefully tried not to go there for all of my information because it felt like cheating, so <laughs> because because of aly journal yeah, <laughs> i exactly.
0: suppose i yeah, I went there because I would cheat. That's a great way to cheat. But anyway, so um, <laughs> let, let, let's let's get into it. It's probably the first time he's heard himself referred to it that way. Uh, our, our guest, our guest today is is, uh, is Jonathan Corbett. Um, he's uh, the kernel documentation maintainer, co-founder of LWN.net. Please go there and the author of its kernel page, a member of the Linux Foundation's technical advisory board, the lead author of Linux Device Drivers Third Edition lives in Boulder, Colorado, and there's so much more going on than that. Um, uh, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Um, there he is, visibly. In, in, Thank you, pleasure his, are, to be here. Are are those books behind you mostly tech or mostly Linux related, or are they are no, they bound volumes of LWN or what?
2: <laughs> no, they're mostly science fiction, actually. And then you can find see things like Edward Tufte up in the. Sorry, wrong up in the corner <laughs> over there. Um, the the tech books are off to the side where you don't see them, but where I can reach them without getting out of my chair.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's. Um, you, you could always tell uh, back when they still had people worked in offices and they had cubicles. You could tell who the hackers were by all of their O'Reilly books on the shelf in their cubicle. You know, there was that. I don't think they tried to hide them, but arms 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 length was was how that went. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you. you were, I it's, it's, I'm, I'm wonder, do you rely on print that much, or do you do? Would you rather go online for, for your wisdom on that stuff? That's just an off the wall question. Not one I was prepared with, but it came to me.
2: I, I still occasionally go to the print books, usually for things like if I have to figure out something with SQL. I mean, you know, SQL is not my area, and it hasn't changed much, so I'll go get my SQL book for <laughs> for current stuff you don't generally want to go online anymore. And so I haven't bought a lot of books in recent times. I think a whole lot of other people haven't either.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, you know, O'Reilly still seems to be alive and they have subscriptions going and let's go into that for a second, because I think, I mean, something I've noticed lately is that everybody wants a paywall, <laughs> you know, every, you know, you go online and you, you click on the Atlantic, you click on the New York times, you click on, on lots of of uh, of of sources, and they you know they'll give you give either give you very little, or they give you nothing and say and they and they tease you and go to a paywall. You've actually had a paywall publication for a very long time, so you're ahead of the game there, and you've probably been ahead of it. Has that been the case from the start? That uh, LWN mm-hmm. has been subscription only. I don't think it no, was. No, it it's not. When it wasn't. Tell us. About yeah, that LWN
2: was. LWN one was actually not meant to be the focus of what we were doing. Uh, me and and my friend Liz Kulba a long-time compatriot um we wanted to start a consulting business around Linux because it was about 1996 97 when we were thinking about this and we thought this Linux thing might be going somewhere. So we were going to make a consulting business with and I guess mostly focused on system administration and such, but we didn't really have all that strong an an idea of what we were going to do. But we did know that we needed to draw attention. So LWN was our attention getter. It was the way that we were going to show the world just how current we are and how how much we knew about the, the Linux world. And since we were keeping up with the Linux kernel mailing list, which was you know all of 100 messages a day in those days, and nobody else could possibly keep up with that, so we could share our work with the community and at the same time draw attention, we thought would surely lead to lots and lots of business. Um, it didn't, but, but <laughs> it did definitely lead to a lot of attention to LWN, so we eventually pivoted over to that We initially wanted to do it as an advertising supported thing because that's what everybody was doing back in 1998 or so when when we were making these decisions and then the dot-com thing hit and the sort of Linux wave at the very end of the dot-com boom hit us and we got acquired briefly, by a company that wanted to use this as sort of a piece of their Linux cor- portal because in those days, everybody was going to make their money by having the the online portal for, for Linux and open source software. And of course, that didn't last very long either. And in 2002, we were cast out on our own again. And we tried the ad-supported thing again for a bit. And um, trying to make a living as an ad-supported website in 2002 really just didn't work very well for anybody who was doing it. So we initially decided to just throw in the towel, and then our readers started throwing money at us and saying you should really do this as a subscription-oriented thing. So I went and hacked on the site code for a while. And it's actually almost exactly 20 years ago, now that I think about it, it was in September that we launched as a subscription-supported site. I'm
0: wondering, I mean, it's interesting to me that your your um, your readers led you to that. It, it's funny because I I I would follow the LKML the Linux Kernel Mailing List a lot. I'm not a the only code I know is Morse, so I I didn't know a lot too much of what they were actually talking about in many cases. But I enjoyed watching watching how it all moved. But what you had with LW like, more than an accessory to that it was like it was an amazing companion um and and i wonder if you thought of it that way that 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 the two kind of went hand in hand
2: well we obviously tried to go along with what was going on in the community and to try to make that community activity more accessible to a wider range of people because even back at the beginning the volume of the traffic was hard even for people in the center of the community to follow much harder if you weren't really current with what was going on and what the people there were talking about so we wanted to make it accessible to the to the wider world and i think we've hopefully we've succeeded in doing that over over the the decades since then but yeah that was our goal
1: <laughs> I do have a question uh and specifically, I would like to know all of your uh, secrets no not not really um w- what I'm curious about is y- you manage to to get all sorts of information, and I have a unique understanding of how difficult it is to come up with uh pertinent uh relative interesting. Timely information on a regular basis, and so I'm a little bit curious how you go about procuring all of the information that goes into l w n uh however uh before you answer doc do you want do you want to tell us about something
0: I was no. just trying to yeah what we what were we just a little um Detail in how we work here. We, you know, we have several ads during the show. And so <laughs> we, we decide how do we want Sean to tease what comes after the next ad or whatever. So. Just go, 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 go okay, Let me, okay. pretend shot. I didn't say
1: anything. You can edit that yeah, out if you want fine, after the fact. It's, it's, uh, so Jonathan, how is it that you good. get the bulk of your information? And the reason that I, I'm curious, uh, one, I'm not going to be stealing your thunder at this point. Back when I when I wrote for Linux Journal every month, I had to come up with like half a dozen interesting stories. And that was a challenge. Um you do more than that. <laughs> it must be a challenge. I'm just curious how you manage to uh, get so much uh, information. Is it is it all you? Do you have a, a team of people that are nerdier than any of us that just, you know, scoured the Internet looking for uh, information?
2: Um, I mean, it's not just me. We're currently down at a relatively low level staff with exactly two people i 'm um, very much looking to hire writers by the way, should anybody wish to to enter into this life of of intrigue and adventure in terms of gathering information what we do for the most part is follow the public discussions we don 't We really work from public sources almost exclusively we don 't have you know people sneaking us information from behind corporate firewalls or anything like that we just don 't operate that way so my main way of operating, especially in the kernel community, is to subscribe to several dozen mailing lists, not just Linux kernel. And I've developed ways of working through them very quickly to try to pick out the the discussions that would make interesting topics. And usually with that, finding topics isn't that hard to do. It's more a matter of narrowing it down to the ones that can actually be dealt with in a timely sort of way. Um, we do also, you know, watch websites and all that and try to follow some discussions happening in, in, um, you know, in discourse servers and online forums and all that sort of thing. The movement of discussions to online forums is actually making our life a whole lot harder because they are much harder to follow than a mailing list is, especially if you spent decades developing a lot of tools to help you follow mailing lists in a quick way. But um, without... NNTP and G News and a few things like that, it would be a whole lot harder.
0: So, um, we have a, uh, I, you gave us a great tease right there with um, with the uh, intrigue and adventure line. So, I have some questions about that. But first, I have to let people know this episode of Philosophy Weekly is brought to you by Collide. That's Collide with a K. IT admins often feel like they have to choose between their commitment to cybersecurity and their duty to protect the employee's privacy. Naturally, you need to safeguard company data against hacks and breaches, but you don't want to turn your workplace into 1984. Traditional MDMs give the IT team complete access and control over company devices, but since employees are inevitably going to use their work laptops for personal activities, these tools can saddle you with surveillance capabilities you never wanted like access to photos and browser history. So before you know it, your end users are complaining about all the security agents slowing down their laptops. Developers are frustrated by a lack of autonomy. People start secretly working on their own personal devices just to get things done. It's easy to fall into the trap of top-down security, but that's not the only option. Collide is an endpoint security solution built around honest security their philosophy is that employees aren't your biggest security risk. They're your biggest allies. And your relationship with them should be based on transparency and informed consent. Collide works by notifying your employees of security issues via Slack, educating them on why they're important and giving them step-by-step instructions on how to resolve them themselves. For IT and security teams, Collide provides the right level of visibility for Mac, Windows, and Linux devices and it addresses high-risk issues that can be solved through brute force or automation. What's more, your end users can see exactly why and how each piece of data is being collected via Collide's user privacy center and their open source code base. You can beat your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash floss to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's Kolide dot com slash floss. Okay, so so Jonathan, you provided us with some really rich um, and useful background material, including a uh, a slide deck you prepared um, after an event. I think it was in Europe or something like that. Whatever it was, you 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 went into. It seemed to be like the biggest issue in there was rust and the use of rust for working on the kernel and where that's going. Uh, Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Because the the kernel is traditionally developed in C. Rust is coming in. There's a lot of Rust developers out there. It's kind of the hot hot code base, the hot code right now. So what's going on with that?
2: Especially the adventure and the
0: intrigue. Yeah. I said especially the adventure (laughs) and the intrigue. We want the juicy um bits.
2: not necessarily a lot of intrigue there. It, you know, The kernel has, as you said, been written in the C programming language. There was a brief experiment with C++ way, way back in the early 90s that didn't work very well at all. It was averted after, I think, just one release, one development release. And it's all been C and assembly ever since then. In recent years, there has been a push to incorporate the Rust programming language. Rust, of course, has its origins in in Mozilla some 10 years, but more than 10 years ago at this point. They tried to design a programming language that would make it very difficult to write code with many types of common errors. C of course makes it very easy to create all kinds of memory safety and other sorts of errors. And we've been doing this sort of backyard action trying to fix these errors for decades in the kernel and in many other software projects as well. The programming language can help with that. It can make sure that you're not accessing memory in ways that, that will create bugs, and security bugs in particular. So a few years ago, a few developers said that Rust would be ideal for for use within the kernel. And in fact, the, the Rust developers wanted Rust to be suitable for, for kernel-type developments because uh, in the sense that it should be suitable for low-level development. And in particular, not impose the sorts of performance penalties that other sorts of languages that have managed runtimes to provide memory safety and such impose. So Rust should be suitable for that. These developers have been working in this direction for some time. They've managed to get a bit of, of corporate support behind that and trying to show that you can, in fact, write kernel modules in the Rust language. This effort has come to to a head over the last couple of years. We discussed it at the Kernel Maintainer Summit one year ago and pretty much concluded that Rust would be incorporated, it would be allowed into the kernel as an experiment to see how it would go. But that didn't happen over the last year. At the Kernel Maintainer Summit just two weeks ago, it was decided that would happen for the 6.1 kernel release. The merge window for 6.1 will be opening in Actually, just after just next week, and that kernel release can be expected to happen in December, probably about mid-December. So, the initial incorporation of Rust into the kernel would be a pretty minimal sort of thing. The, the infrastructure will be there; it will be something for people to play with. There will be no production code that um, the that people will be running written in Rust at that point. But there are things that are coming. There's some very interesting things, including an NVMe driver that was written in Rust. The Linux kernel already has a very well-optimized, well-debugged NVMe driver in C. The Rust one was an exercise to see how well that would work in Rust. And they've managed to get performance that is just slightly short of, of the kernel's C driver without really even trying all that hard. It was a really a spectacular demonstration, I think, of how well this can work. So going forward, we will see what happens with it. There seems to be a lot of interest from people who would not otherwise be kernel developers. I'm working on the kernel now that Rust is there. I, I hope it's going to bring a lot of new faces into our community, and I hope that over time it will show that we can write safer code in a safer language that we don't have to use C for that kind of programming. So that's that's kind of where it stands. The experiments is really just beginning in the sense that once it gets into the main line, there's going to be a lot more attention on it and we'll see a lot more people starting to play with it.
1: So I'm curious. um, I'm I'm kind of a big fan of Rust. I'm not a Rust developer um, at all, but, uh, you know, we've we've interviewed Rust developers here on the on the show and uh, just in general. I'm curious, is there uh, any pushback? against the idea of introducing Rust into the actual Linux kernel? I mean, that seems like a kind of a huge deal. Uh, and I, I, I've been around communities long enough to know that, uh, communities don't always agree on everything. So is there pushback? And if so, do you think that's going to, uh, be an issue or will people just get on board or don't you really know?
2: This is the kernel community. We don't agree on anything, I mean, <laughs> um, but, um, there is a bit of pushback, and uh, you just put up a slide from my talk that uh, there was a, a post from one longtime kernel developer who who actually feels outright insulted by the idea that we need something like Rust to, to avoid creating bugs in the kernel. Most people I think don't feel that way. I think that what I would describe is not necessarily pushback so much as nervousness, because People don't know how well it's going to work in the kernel. I mean, that part we'll see. But if Rust is actually adopted for production kernel code, then we have an awful lot of maintainers with with decades of C experience who are now going to have to learn the Rust programming language well enough to review code that is being submitted, well enough to find bugs in it, and to maintain it going forward. And that, that makes a lot of people nervous because that's that's a lot of learning that's going to have to be done you don't really learn Rusts over a weekend. It's, it takes some time to to get a handle on it. In fact, I'm still working on it fairly hard. I'm kind of, you know, working my way through through the book <laughs> and all that. Um, but you have to write a fair amount of code, I think, to to get a handle on it. And then the interface of Rust to the kernel and the abstractions that are being built to do kernel type things in rust are yet another thing they 're going to have to be learned so there's there 's going to be a lot of of learning that goes on, and the the people who are promoting rust in the kernel who are pushing it are going to have to do a lot of of holding and support work for quite a while. I think they they understand this I think they 're ready for it they're, they say that they 're prepared to do this, but it 's going to be a um, it 's going to be an interesting process to watch over the next year or two.
1: I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. And again, no, I mean, nobody has asked me and nobody should ask me because my opinion is, is, is worth very little. Uh, but, uh, my experience with Rust as somebody who's talked to a lot of developers, uh, about it is that it certainly seems to make a lot of sense. And part of its difficulty is also part of its strength, right? It, it, it requires you to write really good code, uh, or it just doesn't work right. And, um, uh, again that that's a strength so i i hope that uh that things move forward smoothly but um you you kind of echoed what my suspicions were uh in that there are a lot of people who would have to learn a lot in order to make any sort of significant transition uh especially in the in the, in the main kernel itself so i appreciate that and and that's going to be something that's- uh, interesting to watch and where could we go to follow (laughs) such a thing? Is there a website that we could possibly subscribe to with regular information? Yes,
2: (laughs) I can imagine one. We will definitely be watching it. Um, to sort of finish that out. I, I described one of the challenges. There is another one, which is that certain things are just hard to do in rust. Uh, one of the core data structures in the Linux kernel is a is a doubly linked list. We use them everywhere. We have um thousands and thousands of these doubly linked lists. And for reasons I could get into, implementing a doubly linked embedded list in the Rust programming language is almost impossible. There was a separate workshop. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Sorry, it a separate, a, yeah. I was just agreeing with you as I mumbled along. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: There was a separate workshop that was held in in northern Spain just before the the Linux Plumbers Conference and all that that I was privileged enough to go to. And a big part of that workshop was trying to deal with the problem of not really even implementing this doubly linked list structure, but just initializing it. How can you initialize it in a way that that fits into the Rust programming language and allows developers to write idiomatic Rust and that sort of thing? Because you can always do it by just, creating a big unsafe block but that defeats the purpose of of using rust in the first place Mm -hmm. so there are going to be some interesting challenges there of uh, where there are some things that rust just doesn't support very well because it's a use of memory that that rust was in a sense almost designed to prevent Mm
1: -hmm. so do you find that your um your involvement with, uh, LWN and, you know, reporting so regularly on kernel information gives you sort of an inside track on what's going on or do you just get most of the information that you, that you garner from, you know, the, the listserv, which is like drinking from a fire hose for the, the kernel listserv. Um, or, or do you find yourself being one of those inside people that, that gets the, not the dirt, it's the rust. No, that doesn't seem right either. <laughs> Is it just a scouring lists, or or do you have uh, useful conversations with people who you may not otherwise have those conversations if you weren't so involved with the with the kernel development community?
2: Well, you know, my involvement with the kernel development community encompasses both LWN and my actual work directly for the kernel, and and both of those certainly. Bring me a wider awareness of things I mean, on the lwN side people will send us notes saying, "'Hey, have you seen this discussion over here? You might want to pay attention to what's going on there and and that does help us um, and you know, our, our long involvement with the community does get me invited to events like the the Congre host Rustin Linux conference in northern Spain or to the Kernel Maintainer Summit, things like that that certainly increase my awareness of what's going on there. And I think also help, help the community as a whole because I go there as a participant in the community, not as somebody who's just going there to report on things. So it's it's a combination of both. I mean, it's mostly really just watching what's going on in the community, but but it does bring opportunities to, to see what's happening in the community as well.
0: I. I, I want to probe a little further into the um, the old versus new, the conservatism issue that you brought up uh, that you brought up in in your in your slide deck there. Um, but first, I have to let uh, let everybody know that we have this thing called Club Twit, and Club Twit is another great way to support the Twit Network. As a member, you get access to ad free versions of all the shows on Twit, as well as other great benefits. There's a bonus Twit Plus feed which includes footage and discussions that didn't make it into final sh- show edits and as well as bonus shows we've started, such as the giz fizz ask me anything is fireside chats with some of your favorite twit guests and co-hosts uh, as floss weekly listeners. You may be interested in checking out the untitled Linux show. The show is available only to club twit members. Um, so join that. You can sign up to join club twit for just $7 a month. Head over to, twit.tv slash club twit and join today. And we thank you for your support. So one of the most um, interesting and entertaining things to me, uh, Jonathan, and in, in following the Linux kernel mailing list for so many years is Linus himself. Like something comes up and he just sort of smacks things down. And, um, and, and, um, and so you mentioned that conservatism was a bit of an issue and there's a, one of his posts um, uh, he ends up trying to bring it up here with uh, yeah. Um, he says, you really need to understand that rust and the kernel is dependent on kernel rules. And he's emphasizing that not on some other random rules that exist elsewhere. And i wonder to what extent those rules are, are programmatic as it were, or are they cultural or are they both? And is, Linus himself, like j- just being a good leader here, or the biggest stick in the mud on the rest issue.
2: No, I don't think he's a stick in the mud at all. I think he's been pretty supportive of the idea from the beginning. You know, cautious about it and not wanting to to break things. The conversation that you're referring to in particular was a very technical one and uh, had to do with how you deal with failure. the The normal application level Rust way to deal with failure is to panic and throw up your hands and say, this isn't working. Something has gone wrong. Let's just kill the program right there. And for a user space program, that may well be the best thing to do. In the kernel space, you really cannot do that because if you do it, you kill the system completely. And that makes it really hard for users to even just say recover any work they had going on. And it makes it really hard to debug any problems that are are happening. So, uh, the discussion has gone back and forth a few times with the Rust developers. Has been, what do you do when you can't allocate memory? What do you do when you detect a bug somewhere? And the the normal Rust way of throwing a panic is just not something that's accessible there, acceptable there. You have to you have to find a way to muddle along, if at all possible, and keep the system running so that users can recover from whatever has gone wrong. So that was the the topic of that particular discussion there. And and I think Linus was, was entirely right on that point. I don't think that really – I don't think that particular discussion relates to conservatism at all. Um, I can certainly tell stories that do if you want. Um, I mean, on the Russ side, you can go back to the other quote that you put up before – of saying you know, essentially that C has been good enough, you know, it was good enough for my daddy. It's good enough for me. <laughs> uh, I don't see why it shouldn't be good enough for for developers in the future as well. That kind of conservatism. It, a totally different area, which is one closer to home for me, when I became the the documentation maintainer for the kernel. The kernel's documentation directory was really this totally disorganized mess of individual text files. It was, as a previous maintainer said, just a collection of things that random passers-by kind of set down in random locations and left there. It was difficult to use at best and full of old and obsolete stuff. One of the first things that we did was to adopt a a system called Sphinx, which was designed for the documentation of code. It comes out of the Python community initially. and We wanted to use it to bring some structure to the Linux documentation tree to allow us to create nice HTML documents and all that stuff, which is really almost a secondary concern. But something we wanted to do, the main thing we wanted to do was to impose some structure on our documentation and actually create something coherent as opposed to several thousand individual ASCII text files that people threw into a directory somewhere. And I ran into incredible amounts of opposition on that. I still am sometimes. There are people who just didn't like restructured text because it imposes a little bit of structure on what is still really just an ASCII text file containing your documentation. There are people who didn't want to reorganize our documentation directory to actually make it more friendly to our readers and try to bring subjects together and to put structure on it. It's, it's a you know, battle that I had to fight for several years. And I think i won it because I think the bulk of the community was really behind doing something better in that regard. I think we have a long way to go, but it's the kind of thing you run into when you, you try to, to bring change to a community that has done things the same way for, for more than 30 years now. I think it's just inherent to the territory really.
0: So, um, it's, it's interesting to me that I was around, I just want to stay on Linus for a minute because, um, I actually got some hang time with him during the time that he was writing Git and ditching Bitkeeper. And that was, that was almost an example of where um, he was not being a conservative. He was the opposite really. And, uh, and I suppose he was getting some pushback on that. And it's interesting to be what he leads on and what he doesn't. Um, I don't see him among, you know, the, the top list of contributors. You have this wonderful list of, of, uh, who's contributed what in the 5.19, uh, uh kernel. um, your, your stats are always amazing. <laughs> I just have to say that. Uh, um, but obviously he's still leading in, in some ways. Um, and I'm, and I'm wondering, you know, where, you know, I, I think you made a really good point in saying that this is really one little minor point here that's in a technical issue. So where is, what does Linus's leadership look like now? Um, Uh, obviously, he's still very involved, he still looks like the chief poobah, at least to to an outsider like me. But I'm not inside, you are inside, you're documenting the whole thing.
2: All right, let let me answer this in a few ways, starting with with the Git thing, actually. Because, um, you know, we adopted BitKeeper in about 2002, until then the uh, Linux community was functioning without a source code management system for over 10 years. You know, if that doesn't really epitomize conservatism and resistance to change, I don't know what does. I mean, that was kind of a a very interesting situation in its own right. When we did finally change that first via Bitkeeper and then via Git, we, we not only changed the way we work, we changed the whole world. And, I, I take that as an example of what we could do in the future, for example, with adoption of Rust and other sorts of development tools. Getting back to Linus in particular, he doesn't write a lot of code these days. That's that's really not his role, right? His role is to decide what gets into the mainline kernel and to try to steer people as they're developing things in that direction. So you'll often see him most actively during the merge windows if you watch what he posts in the coming week or two. and you will see somebody come to him with a pull request saying, here is some stuff that needs to go into the CISCOT-1 kernel. And he'll look at it and he'll say, no, I am sorry. This is not acceptable. You can't do it this way. It needs to be done some other way. Now, normally, hopefully, this happens before it gets to the pull request point. And he will often participate in discussions to to make that happen as well. But that's really his, his role is steering things at a high level and make sure that everybody is playing well together they're pushing in something resembling the same direction and the, the work that they come up with when, by the time it gets to him is is acceptable for for pulling into the kernel to to create a do a stable production ready kernel at the end of it so He doesn't author a lot of code, but if you look at it, merges into the kernel, right? If you look at the merge commits, which I don't normally count, you will see that he is the creator of a vast number of them because he is the one who is taking the pieces and putting them together to create the whole that we all use as a Linux kernel at the end.
1: All right, so what I hear is that if I want to get all of the kernel documentation switched from text-based to emoji-based in order to save bits because you can just say so much more with an emoji. No, I'm just kidding. Um, actually, my question though does lead right off of, um, of Linus's, uh, handling things. I, not me personally, but uh, I've seen discussions uh, where people are concerned that, uh, the majority I believe of, uh, changes going into the kernel are done by, uh, people employed by a small number of companies and that's both good and bad, right? I mean, it, people are getting paid yeah, I would, to I develop the kernel, but also that. there's a concern. Okay. is I mean, is there any, sh- should we be worried about, about that? I mean, again, I, there are, there's clearly vested interest in the kernel being healthy. And so, you know, people getting paid to uh, develop the kernel is ideally what we want. Uh, but is there too much concentration of influence? so to speak, by companies?
2: Well, as far as I can tell, something just over 90% of the people contributing to the kernel are doing that as part of their job. All right. So, you know, kernel development is very much a paid sort of thing. There aren't that many volunteer developers anymore just because, well, there's a lot of reasons, but among other things, anybody who has any success as a volunteer developer tends not to stay that way very long because people start throwing money at them. But if you look at a typical development cycle, the people who are working on the kernel are working for generally just over 200 and as many about as about 240 different companies. So it's not exactly a small number of companies that are developing the kernel or who are paying the developers to work on the kernel. And generally, the most influential companies will be behind at most maybe 10% of the commits that go into the kernel. So I really don't think that there's any one company that has undue influence over the kernel. There may be companies that can try to influence in any one particular direction. But in general, when even the biggest companies, the most productive companies, try to influence the kernel in ways that are not healthy for the long-term you know, for the kernel over the long term, they get a lot of pushback and people call them out. Even people working for those companies will call them out for that. Mm -hmm. So I think the situation's pretty healthy that way, honestly. And
1: and I appreciate that. And and it was the kind of thing I I was hoping that's sort of the way that you would answer. uh, Because, I mean, the concern, it's not necessarily conspiracy theory, right? It's just uh, there is a concern, like, could somebody uh, hire enough uh, of the, prominent kernel developers to buy influence in uh, kernels such that it would benefit their company while, um, you know, hindering another. And uh, it sounds like maybe the the development team is still large enough that that's not necessarily the case and possibly even self-policing. You said, you know, the company would uh, frown on its own developers for doing such a thing. So th- that's encouraging. I-, I appreciate that. And I- I'm glad that uh, we could hear it out loud.
2: Yeah, to, to follow up on that, I mean, companies do definitely hire developers to influence how the kernel goes. I mean, Most often, they want the developers to make the kernel work well on their hardware, for example. You know, it's a good sort of influence. Sometimes there are more subtle things, and, you know there are people involved. There are going to be things that happen there, but there are, there are just over 2000 developers anymore that contribute to any given kernel development cycle and something over 4,000, 4,500 who contribute over the course of the year. So you would have to hire a lot of developers to try to influence the, the kernel as a whole. Um, the, the the piece of the puzzle that I didn't quite talk about before is maintainers, the people who decide which patches actually get into the kernel. And there are fewer of those and those work for fewer companies. Um, the last time I looked, the patches getting into the mainline kernel are going through the hands of maintainers that are employed. Uh, if you look at about half of the, of the patches going into the kernel are going through maintainers employed by about half a dozen companies. So there is more concentration at that level and perhaps more potential for trouble there. I think that the real problem there is not that those companies are trying to hire maintainers to to influence the kernel. I think the problem there is that companies really tend to be reluctant to pay people to work as maintainers. And something that a lot of companies could do to help the situation is to, to make maintainership part of people's job and really pay them for that. Um, I think that's why we see concentration there is because a lot of companies just aren't willing to do that. They'll pay a developer to write a driver for the device and then it stops there. And, but that's really only a part of the problem. So we're we're perennially short of maintainers and we could really use more resource there.
0: Oh my gosh, you just opened, um, a rich vein of possible questions <laughs> in the limited time we have left. So um, we'll get to at least one of those after I let everybody know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla. IRL is a show for people who build AI and people who develop tech policies. It's hosted by Bridget Todd. And this season, it looks at AI in real life. Who can AI help? Who can it harm? It features uh, conversations with people who are working to build a more trustworthy AI. These are fascinating in every case. There is an episode about how our world is mapped with AI. The data that's missing from these maps tells as much of a story as the maps themselves. You'll hear about the people who are working to fill in the gaps and take control of the data. There's another episode about gig workers who depend on apps for their livelihood. That one looks at how they're pushing back against algorithms that control how much they get paid and seeking new ways to gain power over data, create better working conditions. For Political Junkies, there are episodes about the role that AI plays when it comes to the spread of misinformation and hate speech around elections. That's a huge concern for democracies around the world. Um, the latest episode is called the AI Medicine Cabinet. Um, uh, that that I just listened to um it goes from Maryland to Rwanda uh, to other places, looking at AI diagnostic systems. Um, uh, work, one working on Mozilla's Privacy Not Included Buyer's Guide that investigates privacy and security and mental health apps. Uh, all kinds of stuff in there. Highly, highly recommend checking that out. Um, search for IRL in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. My thanks to IRL for their support. So, so Jonathan, you you touched on the human side of this thing, and there's so many ways they could go. Um, one, one of them is, and and it's one you just touched on now. Um, there, the level of appreciation for the foundational role that Linux and other open source code bases, but especially Linux, because Linux is in nearly everything. It's in the clock I look at up here. It's in all kinds of stuff. Um, it has become the embedded operating system in all the televisions um, that are, and yet it's interesting to me that they that companies don't look deep enough to recognize how important this is. I I, I would think that they, the companies would have lots and lots of gift subscriptions to, um, LWN as well. So what do you think is going on with companies that, that, that they don't get the importance that they have? I mean, I, I Linux Journal ended in, at least for us, uh, Sean and I, in 2019. It's still on the web, but as a functional magazine, uh, it ended then. Um, and in part because of that, <laughs> you know, there was, a, there was a time, I remember, you know, IBM, for example, uh, we became friends with Dan Fry there. He ran a division... And he's the one who told me that uh, it took him six years to find out that the, the kernel developers they hired on purpose, uh, Ted Show, for example, um, you know, were telling them what to do rather than them telling the kernel maintainers what to do and had war stories about that. And um, I notice now that, you know, I mean, that that uh, uh, Meta, which is Facebook, is a big participant now, at least as, a, as, as an employer. Um, and of course they have a vast vast pile of linux machines running right as does google these are these are important to the world and and stuff that they need has to show up in the kernel in some ways and then everybody else gets to benefit from it but what do you think is is there just cluelessness there is it too many layers of of management what's the deal
2: well again with over 200 companies participate in every kernel development cycle uh I, I don't think I would say that that companies are entirely unaware of of the importance of it. You know, I mean on the LWN side, we of course sell subscriptions to companies for the employees, and we have a pretty broad representation of of companies, including, you know, companies in areas like the finance sector that you wouldn't necessarily think are interested in, but in fact are very interested in. In what's going on in the Linux kernel for for very similar sorts of reasons, so the awareness is there. Um, but you know, the, the willingness to, I first of all, the understanding of how to engage with it, and the willingness to engage with it, of course, varies quite a bit. I think there are an awful lot of companies who think they can just grab the software, toss it into something, make use of it and solve their problem and move on to the next thing. And, in fact, a lot of them can. And, you know, it's not what we like to see. We would like to see better participation. But it is also, you know, assuming they follow the license, it's also entirely within their rights. It's what we said they could do with our code. We put it out there with with the that They could indeed do exactly that, right? They don't have to. So all we can do is to encourage companies that that depend on what we do to to participate in it, to, to help to to steer it in the direction they want to go. And companies tend to figure this out over time. They start by just sort of taking it. Then they maybe start making demands of developers, and that doesn't go very far. And then they slowly learn that if they work within the community, they can get things to go the way they want them to go, and they can get what they need from Linux in a much better sort of way. And there, there are people who will try to help them with that. One of the functions of the of the Linux Foundation's technical advisory board is in fact to to work with companies that are trying to figure out how to work with the with the development community and to, to talk to them and say, hey, this is what you're doing right. This is what you're doing wrong. You should really doing be doing this some other way. Uh, it's it's something that we do kind of you know out of sight, but it is something that we do that I think has helped a lot of companies to become better members of the development community
1: as a whole. So speaking of being better members, um, I, I'm not, I'm not a developer and, and I'm not involved with, especially with any large projects. And so, um, I'm really glad that you brought up the issue of, uh, there being fewer maintainers than is ideal. And, and that uh, the whole nuance between developers and maintainers and, and that sort of thing is, is really starting to, uh, uh be above my head as far as uh, comprehension goes, but what would be the the motivation apart from goodwill for companies to have more interest in uh, uh, the maintaining part that that might be lacking uh, diversity of companies diversity you know at, at all uh, is is there something that uh, companies are are missing uh, is it just the goodwill of you know the the half dozen or so companies involved that are doing it
2: well I mean, supporting maintainership, of course, uh, very much increases your influence over how things go. And that's, that's something that's best to keep in mind. But really, supporting maintainership is valuable to ensure that the subsystems that you depend on go in a way that will be useful to you going forward. If you say, I don't know, you make web cameras, just since I'm staring at one that comes to mind, then you might want to employ a developer to write a driver so that your webcams work well with Linux because you want your cameras installed in Android phones, whatever. And if Android, which runs Linux, does not support your camera, it's not going to go there. So that's sort of a minimal level of participation. But you may find that your camera does interesting and strange things that are not well supported by, by the the kernel's video subsystem overall. And in fact, this is, this is happening right now. There, there's trouble with some, some camera devices that are not very well supported by the media subsystem in Linux. And so we're starting to see closed source or out of tree drivers being used for that. And that's not good. If we had instead people from the companies involved more active in the maintainership of that subsystem, They know where their product line is going. They know the kinds of things that the subsystem as a whole is going to have to support in the coming years. And they can work to push things in that direction so that when their device comes onto the market, Linux is ready for it. That's really hard to do if you're just trying to contribute drivers. You really have to be working up at higher levels. And you don't necessarily have to be a maintainer to do that. But helping the maintainers and working at at higher levels in the subsystem Will really help your company in future years if you do that. So that that's one reason for companies to participate more at that level.
1: Cool, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um,
0: uh, uh, we have a couple more. We have a fairly limited time left here, but um, I want to ask about um, diversity. Uh, there's uh, we had that issue with Linux Journal. I mean, our Linux Journal's subscribership basically rounded to 100% male um, in its time. And uh, an oddity about that is that our management was 100% female and actually at a point our ownership was as well, at least as I recall. And um, uh, how, I mean, this isn't, when, when you're looking at developers and maintainers, this you can't run an affirmative action program very easily, I don't think, or something like that. I, I don't know. I don't know what the method would be. I, it, because these things are, aren't just social. They're, they're largely technical and they're, you know, what people get obsessed with when they're in high school or later. Um, a lot of it is just purely circumstantial. You're dealing with a very, very small population as well. I mean, these are not, you know, as part of the whole human population, these are, these are wizards. You know, they all went to their own Hogwarts, as it were. And the LKML in a way is, is, you know, something at a Hogwarts of a sort, and and how you get in there is just by writing great code. That's something that Linus himself has said over and over again when he's been sort of busted on this issue. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. How how can, you know, what what can be done, and, and who does it, <laughs> if anything? I don't know. It's it's really deeply weird that it's almost 100% male uh, on, yeah, on those lists. Yeah, it's,
2: it's, it's a really hard question. I mean, people have been doing things, you know, there have been mentorship programs, such as Outreachy and um, the Community Bridge program within the Linux Foundation and such that have tried to help in this regard. I don't know. It's hard to say how successful they have been. I mean, a lot of the people who go through those programs seem to disappear afterwards. Um, they may well be working as kernel people, but inside companies where you don't see them. Um So that, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect I think is role models and at times many of us have tried to draw attention to the role models that we have by, you know, drawing attention to some of the you know, of the non-basic white male nerdy kernel developers that we have. We did at the Linux Plumbers Conference a few years ago, we did a kernel developers panel, which is something we often do. You get a bunch of developers up there to talk about kernel issues. And without telling anybody, without advertising and such, we, had, we put it together as an all-female panel uh, just to t- – some people up there say, you well, know, these people out there, they're doing interesting stuff. They're thriving in this community. Um, you know, this is something that we would like more people to try to emulate. Uh, we then got complaints about the diversity of the panel. Um, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, there, The other aspect of this has been the whole idea that the the development community is, is hostile to, to you know, not just, say, female developers, but a whole lot of people who don't want to participate in what is seen as a very Wild West sort of development environment on the kernel mailing list. I think that the people are still thinking about a 1990s version of the kernel mailing list. It's, it's really not what it was back then. But it is still a place where you have to be willing to go out there, have your ideas challenged, and be willing to, to defend them. And perhaps not everybody wants to have their ideas challenged in quite that way. I don't know that that's really, I mean, I don't want to say that this is a, a gender linked sort of thing or, or any other sort of metric you want to say, but there are people who hold this up as, as an impediment to people joining our community. And we've tried to be better in that regard and are continuing to do so. Um, but no doubt have a ways to go yet.
1: So I, I just got to, got to highlight again, you were called out for not having enough dudes on the panel <laughs> on the all female panel.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, that's,
1: well, that's, I mean, well, it's, I, people I, I and, and laugh, but it's, it's a little frustrating that that would, that would be the case. So uh, I think well, they're, they're, great on you guys for doing that. I mean, that's, that's uh, great on you guys. Listen to me. I mean, even it's, it's so ingrained uh, in, in my psyche that it's, uh, it, it's mostly men. So, uh, Kudos to the group for arranging an all-female panel. I think that's awesome, and it's unfortunate that it didn't go over well. Well, Well, I think it I did. did, did but because, you always
2: yeah. get complaints.
0: Oh, okay. Squeaky well, you, wheels. So not you, not the whole. You get complaints anyway, of. I suppose, about anything. Um, and, and there is diversity in terms of geographical distribution and you know cultures and things like that. There's there's a fair amount of that, um, but the <laughs> The lack of women is kind of, is kind of huge. I I'm, I'm, you mentioned something that the um the Linux Foundation is doing, and the Linux Foundation is looming larger and larger in in um in in the Linux world, and in fact in many other worlds, all sorts of adjacent um, free and open software worlds. That they have a really interesting way of moving into noticing a topic. And recently, they expressed they had a press release on the intent to, to form to form a foundation. They 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 spawn foundations like like uh, like fish or something that uh, that was on wallets. Wallets is coming up as something that that the Linux Foundation is going to be interested in. And but it's a new kind of organization. We don't we've not seen it's like before. I don't know to what extent Linux itself has had an influence on that, but. You're involved with the LF, and we've had many people with the LF on this on the show. We had Brian Bellendorf on a couple of weeks ago. So, and what what's, what are your thoughts about that? And because you've been somewhat involved with it and with the role of the LF.
2: Yeah, and I serve on their their technical advisory board, which is really meant to represent the kernel community's interests to the Linux Foundation. Um, so that's that's my main involvement with them these days, and I've spoken at a lot of their conferences. Um, you know, from the point of view of the kernel community, I think the LF's involvement has been very positive, in that they've given some developers like like Linus Torvalds a place to to live that's free of the influence of any given company, that sort of thing. They took over kernel.org after the security issues we have there and have managed to run that infrastructure for us very nicely. They've supported travel for a lot of developers to conferences, that sort of thing. So I think, and they've been running this mentorship program as well. So I think that they're, I believe their participation has been positive. Um, The the Linux foundation makes a lot of people nervous. Um, It does seem to be intent on rapid growth um, to Perhaps a greater extent than than I would like but but it's it's not my my organization that's that's fine they can run it the way they like. There are people who would really like to see the l f do things that it was not made to do, like for example promote GPL license enforcement and things like that that is really just not going it's just something they're not going to do because that's not really at the top of the list for the people who are in the end supporting it, which are large companies working in the Linux area, right? They're there to make kernel development work well and various other projects work well. And I think they help with that. They they can never be the only organization that's, that's working in this area. Um, but I mean, again, I think their their involvement is positive. That's why I continue to to be involved with them.
0: So we're, at the end of our hour here, um, maybe even a little past it as I look at my clock, old-fashioned one of the sweep secondhand. Every time you see me looking up, that's what it is. Um, I, 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 the, just a quick one, are there any questions we haven't asked that you'd like us to have asked? And then I have a final two brief ones.
2: Um, I don't know, you could have asked me, how can I apply to work as a writer for LWN? <laughs> um, in Which case I would say, um, look at the, the write for us link on the LWN front page and go there. I won't go for that other than say that I really am looking for people who would like to be a part of, of this exercise going forward. Um, if if you feel that you can write the sort of stuff that we do, please contact me.
0: That's great. I, I we always close the plugs generally for, for our own stuff, but that's a great one. Thank you for that. The last two questions are what are your favorite, um, uh, Text editor and scripting language. We asked everybody. Favorite? I mean, I do most of my work in Emacs, but um, Mm -hmm. I am
2: also—I mean, I've used Vi since about 1981 or so, and know (laughs) it very well, and often use it in places where I don't want to fire up Emacs. So the way I put it is, I tend to run Vi when I'm running as root, and Emacs when I'm doing everything else. Um,
0: That's a first. That's good. for, for scripting
2: way. languages i mean I, I i use Python pretty heavily for all that the l w n site is written in python and when I need something to to bash something out that's
1: what I reach for to bash something out you use python
0: that's great well um it has been great having you on the show uh Jonathan. and and um uh We'll have to have you back when Six O comes out. I think, or maybe shortly after that, to catch well, up, catch week. us up on. <laughs> is it next week? Okay, maybe. Well, maybe have you back <laughs> next
1: week. It's, he did say after. To talk about Didn't that. say how long. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it next week? Wow. For some reason, I thought it was later, but then you would know. Oh <laughs> no,
2: mm, I, totally. yeah, I appreciate the insight. And, that comes out on Sunday.
1: Yeah, I I'm appreciate how. the conversation because, well, I mean, Linux has. The core of of my career, uh, the actual kernel, kernel development stuff, is uh, uh, something I'm I'm not heavily involved in. So I appreciate the insights today.
2: Well, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks again. So, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, like good. I said, it was it was really great to um, uh, talk about the Linux kernel with somebody who actually knows what's going on and what's going on currently and uh, has a grasp of uh, that community, which I mean, it it's public, but it's not uh, well known. I, I, I don't know what I'm what I'm going for there. It's just it's kind of mystic and it's not something that is easy to get involved with unless it's absolutely what you do for a living. And so having an insider's uh, look on things uh, is great. And I'll be honest. Uh, I, I didn't talk too much about it, but um, I, I had to try really hard not to just go to LWN to come up with ideas for Linux Journal when I was writing every month um, because I, I it just didn't feel right. So <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I did what I did, but um, uh, I'm, I'm also glad LWN is still there. So
0: I always thought it was just fabulously informative and very straightforward. And I like the simple HTML in it (laughs) and on the, on the website. Um, uh, so I, I have to let everybody know that next week we have David P. Reed on. David, uh, Reed is one of the fathers of the internet. Uh, he's one of the came of the Reed's law about networks. Um, he was one of the primary authors, the three authors actually of, uh, the end to end design and systems. Um, and end to end is actually what we have with the internet. So he's one of the architects of the internet. He is a very original thinker, very smart guy and he's a good friend too. So he's coming up next week. So, um,
1: so Sean, a plug before we go. Um, uh, just the same as always, you know, YouTube channel, blog, uh, yeah, uh, Seanpowers.com with the zero for the O. Oh yeah, there's me. Uh, oh, literally I'm wearing that shirt. I wrote that this morning. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I promise yeah. I have other shirts. I, it's literally from today. So, uh, yeah. Okay.
0: So great. Um, Thanks, everybody. David P. Reed next week. Come back for that. And until then, I'm Doc Searles. This is Flush Weekly. See you later. The world is changing
2: rapidly, so rapidly, in fact, that it's hard to keep up. That's why Micah Sargent and I, Jason Howell, talk with the people making and breaking the tech news on Tech News Weekly every Thursday. They know these stories better than anyone. So why not get them to talk about it in their own words? Subscribe to Tech News Weekly and you won't miss a beat every Thursday at twit.tv.